The text for this morning is taken from Luke 2, the verses 1 to 7, and we'll read that once more. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took, first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn." Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a little over two millennia ago, with much celebration and rejoicing, it was announced that a boy was born. As he grew older, he would be named the Savior of the world. One after another, nations fell under his sway, and his influence grew and grew until it spread over the entire Roman world and he ruled it with an iron fist. One opponent after another was crushed under his feet. Anyone who stood against him was quickly taken care of. His enemies cringed and cowered before him as his power grew and grew until he could finally name himself emperor. The name of this man was Gaius Octavius, more commonly known as Caesar Augustus. Decades later, in the little town of Bethlehem, another child is ready to be born. There are no cheers for this child from throngs of men and women gathered around. There are no grand preparations being made in wealthy homes. It is simply a young man and a young woman coming into town. The young woman is probably riding on the back of a donkey, as was common in the day, with the young man leading it. Tired and worn out from their long journey, they come to the inn, ready for some sleep. The inn is full, likely because of all the officials and their guards who have come into town to carry out the census. But someone has a bit of room for them all the same. They are directed to a stable. There, the young woman gives birth, and so the Son of God enters into the world. Congregation of, the Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, I bring the word of God to you as summarized under the following theme and points. The emperor, the king, and the changing of the world. And we'll see, first of all, the mover of nations. Secondly, the royal king. And third, the humble servant. Caesar Augustus, to whom we are introduced in the opening words of our passage, was the first emperor of the mighty Roman Empire. He is also considered by many to be the greatest Roman emperor. But it was not by his own might that he reached this status. It was thanks in a large part to the work of his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, that he was able to have the power to make this decree that would move the nations. 
When Julius Caesar first seized power, he did so violently. In response to the fierce opposition in the halls of power in the Roman Empire, he crossed the now famous Rubicon River, declaring war on the sitting government. And so he took control. Even though he took power in a way that was frowned on by many, he was still popular among the people. It was only when he seemed to be accepting the titles of king and god that some influential men like Brutus, Mark Antony, and Pompey were able to gather enough steam to assassinate him. But by this time, the damage had been done. People had started to view both the office he claimed and the Roman government in a very different light. And so the way was paved for Caesar Augustus to come in. Caesar Augustus restored order to the Roman Empire. Although his climb to power was ruthless, the fact that he was gentler later made him popular in the eyes of many. After so many years of civil war and unrest, people were happy to have a man who could usher in peace. Even if the cost was replacing the Roman Republic with the imperial system of government, they were happy to pay it as long as it was stable. And so, under Augustus, the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, was established and spread out over the entire Roman world. It was an era of of peace and tranquility that was unrivaled. It made it easy for people to honor him, and honor him they did. They gave him names such as Savior, the Son of a God, the God being Julius Caesar, and more. He accepted the titles. He even accepted the title later, calling him the high priest or the highest priest, Pontifex Maximus. With the word, he became a man who could move nations. At the slightest whim, he could command the peoples and they would be forced to obey. In the eyes of the people, he was a man with ultimate authority, religious, political, and otherwise. And he took advantage of that. The enrollment of the entire Roman world, mentioned in our passage, is an example of that. Every 14 years since the 3rd century BC, Rome had caused its people to be registered. And this year, in the year of Christ's birth, this year was no different. Augustus gave the word, and the world bent the knee. But was it really what the world thought? Was Augustus really the power behind this? God had another plan in mind. God didn't need word to move nations. He could do it with the slightest thought. We read in Proverbs, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. The heart of Augustus was in the hands of God, and he turned it where he wished with a thought. He moved nations with his set purpose. What many people would have seen as an incredible inconvenience just for the sake of being taxed, God used for his own plans because it was time for a prophecy to be fulfilled. Centuries before the prophet Micah had spoken, centuries before he had predicted by the Spirit of the Lord, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me 
the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And now these words are coming true. Augustus may have thought that he was at the center of all this. He may have thought that this was an exercise of his might and his power for the benefit of his empire. But God had already planned this from of old. He had already decreed this from before time began. With the thought, the Lord shook the nations, uprooting them from their homes to herald the birth of the one who was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we live in uncertain times today. With the election down south and the difficulties surrounding that, with the increasing restlessness of the superpower Russia and the wars in Syria, Africa, and many other places, life can seem scary. In our personal lives, too, there might be serious upheaval and turmoil. The world as we knew it can suddenly be shifting. This may be frightening. But through it all, always remember that God is still God. He has proved in history that while man proposes, God disposes. God works out everything for his own means. It may mean that life is inconvenient. It may mean that you have to travel 95 miles on a donkey while in your third trimester. It may mean that your world seems to be crashing down around you. But God is in control. When all else is spinning into chaos, find that center. Look to the one stabilizing force in your universe. Cling to the only one who can give you the strength necessary to weather the storm in your life. And trust, trust that he will work out all things necessary for your good. Give your life over to him and surrender it in your time of difficulty. Call upon him in prayer. And say to yourself, my heavenly Father knows what I need. He is in control of it all, and he sees my situation, and he will provide. I will wake up tomorrow. I will wake up the next day, and I will focus on that for the moment. But in the meantime, I will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and trust that everything else will be added to me. Because he, the ruler of nations, is in control of my life. Now Joseph, in response to the demands of a powerful ruler, obediently goes to his hometown. This was a fairly long trip. It wouldn't have been too bad for him, as someone in the ancient world would have been used to traveling longer distances like this. It likely wasn't the first time that he had traveled to Jerusalem, and it certainly wouldn't be his last. We read in Luke 2, verse 41, that they went every year to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. But this year was different. This year, as we mentioned a moment ago, Mary was traveling in what was probably her early third trimester. The Bible doesn't suggest that she gave birth the same night that she arrived, but it states that while they were there, the days were completed for the child to be delivered. 
It could even have been a few weeks of them remaining there in that stable. Now, this doesn't take away from how uncomfortable the trip would have been. The trip was about 90 miles by way of the Transjordan, the road on the other side of the Jordan around Samaria that all of the Jews took. Ladies, imagine that. Being in your third trimester, that far along, traveling 90 miles over hills, through valleys, crossing the Jordan River twice. Mary was a tough young lady. But now the question arises, why all the hassle? Why were they both going all this distance to be registered in the little town of Bethlehem? In and of itself, Bethlehem was not a particularly important town. Its name was pretty much a description of the place. Bethlehem is Hebrew for house of bread. It was a farming community supplying grain for bread, and we know from the Old Testament that they also had sheep. But while food and wool were fairly important in everyday life, it still didn't explain why Joseph and Mary would travel all this way. The reason they came all this way was because both Joseph and Mary were descendants of King David. You can already see this in the genealogy in the beginning of the book of Matthew and in the description of both he and Mary being of the house and lineage of David and so both needing to be registered here. Family records were incredibly important to the Jews because of all the Old Testament laws connected to family land ownership, inheritance rights, kinsmen redeemer responsibilities, and because of the benefits of being members of the covenant people. So it is no surprise that they would have to go all the way back to Bethlehem, that their family records would have been kept here, this being the birthplace of David. It's no surprise that they would have to come back when the time for the census came around. However, there was more to it than that. As we saw before, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was a fulfillment of prophecy. But the return of Joseph and Mary to that area had an even more important meaning. This return was evidence, physical proof for the Jews who were expecting the coming Messiah it was not only proof that Jesus was born in Bethlehem itself, but also that he was a son of David. Many of the ones who heard of Jesus, who heard of his life, would have been able to think back and remember that census. And it would make sense to them that Jesus would be born there as Joseph and Mary would have had to return there. This was the greater son the greater son whom David had been expecting. We can read about this at length in Psalm 110. This was the royal son to whom he referred when he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This was the son who would become the ruler of the world, who would lead captivity captive, and who would defeat even death itself. This was the royal son who had been promised already back in 2 Samuel 7. At that point, God had said to King David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish your kingdom. Now this promise was initially fulfilled through his son Solomon. 
That's why it can also be said in 2 Samuel 7, when he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men. But it also goes so much beyond this. Solomon was an imperfect king. He was a king with many faults. And he sinned in his actions against God in many ways. There's more at work here, though. Three times in 2 Samuel 7, the word forever is found in that promise. Three times we see that God's favor will not depart from David's house and from David's line. We read the words, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we read, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times this divine decree failed through the actions of the flawed and ultimately weak King Solomon. But here we see it coming into its fullness through the royal son, through David, through Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, and he is the one who will enjoy God's favor. Mankind fails before God, but when God becomes man, when we see divinity incarnate, we see the just and wise rule of the one who will never falter or fail. And there will come a day when his rule, when his victory is made complete. At that time, death and the devil will have been defeated. Yes, pardon, at, at this time, death and the devil have been defeated. There are still daily struggles that we face, and we can see that in times when it feels like the devil himself is opposing you, and his craft and power are great. Now, if we rest in our own strength in these times, if we lose sight of what God has accomplished for us in sending the royal son to earth, we will lose this battle. If it was not for the sake of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, standing on the side of those who believe him, we would lose every battle. But we have the king of kings. We have the royal son on our side. He is the Lord of hosts, commanding all the armies of heaven. And though this world with its forces of demonic Though this world is filled with forces of demonic opposition, we can celebrate today because it is on this day that we celebrate the death knell of Satan and his forces. Christ's entry into the world through the Virgin Mary was a sign, though not recognized yet, that the forces of terror under Satan were going to meet their end. And what comfort that is for us. For which king can stand before him? Which ruler can oppose him? If the king of darkness could not, how much could any earthly king? Caesar Augustus had no power compared to him. We read elsewhere that King Herod, who bent all of his royal authority to the task of destroying him, could not accomplish what he set out to do. We can see today authorities trying to battle with his followers, and they cannot overcome. Those who set themselves up as king over our lives individually as well, threatening to use their power to bring us down, they cannot stand against the authority of Jesus Christ. While all of these powers may seem powerful in the moment, their ability to do us harm may seem able to overwhelm us, yet they will not have the final victory. 
Their judgment is assured. What then shall we say to these things? If God, through the royal Son, is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It's Christ, the royal Son, who died for us, who is also risen, who is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. He sits in heaven as our glorious King, who has brought, bought his beloved with his own precious blood. None can condemn his chosen ones because the king himself has paid the price that their condemnation deserved. His birth, the sign of the beginning of the end, guarantees that all those born into the world as God's children will remain in his love until the end. In the face of all that, we can say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, tribble, tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all this, these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So let us not tremble. The devil may rage. His forces may do their best to damage us and destroy our lives, but they cannot take us from the royal son. This we have as our constant. Our king is in heaven, directing all. He loves us, and nothing can separate us from this love. This is our third point. Even as he has all of this power and might, even as he has the forces of heaven at his beck and call, Christ still did not come into the world to exploit it. He came in the most basic of circumstances. The kings of men have cheering crowds awaiting their children, even children who are far down in the line of royal succession, like Prince George, the son of William and Kate, they have flocks of people eagerly awaiting their birth. And when they are born, they receive royal treatment. The best doctors and nurses support them. The most skilled bodyguards keep them company. The prettiest bassinet is found for them. The most delicious parade baby food is looked for for them. That was the kind of reception that Christ deserved. But is it the reception he received? No, they didn't even get a room at the inn as they were hoping to. All we know is that this baby was delivered into the hands of Joseph, a carpenter, and he was wrapped in swaddling cloths and he was laid in a manger. Why? Why was it necessary for our Lord, our King, our God to be born into such a lowly estate? Why did he have to face poverty, humiliation, and hardship? We read in Philippians 2 that Christ made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
That is why he did it. He did it for us. He did this for the joy of being united with us in order to bring more glory to the Father. He, being very God, did not demand that all kneel before him, but he took the hard and lonely way, the long, narrow, rough, and winding way, coming before the Father. He came to earth in his divine nature to be able to bear the weight of the heavy wrath of God against sin. And because he did this in his divinity, his one sacrifice was enough. It was an infinite payment for an infinite death. Because he humbled himself in this way. Because he did this in humanity. Human flesh can now stand before God as holy and righteous because man paid the penalty that man deserved. Because of him, everyone who believes can stand redeemed and holy, washed clean in the blood of his suffering. And so Philippians 2 continues. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. His humility has now come to an end. God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue could confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He came in order to set the relationship between us and the Father right, and he has accomplished this, and now he stands in glory. This Christmas season, let us confess as, this as well, brothers and sisters. This is not a season that we remember a little baby who had the misfortune of being born in the wrong place at the wrong time, and because of that ended up in a manger. This was Almighty God moving all of history in concert together, uprooting nations, controlling an emperor, bringing down kingdoms to let the things play out in accordance with his royal plan, all in order to bring the one who could redeem the world into existence, the Messiah, the royal son, Christ the Lord. Amen.